Welcome to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast, a show where we discuss what's wrong with healthcare and talk with innovative companies disrupting the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we explore strategies to help employers lower healthcare costs and build a better health plan. Now here's your host, Michael Maneri. All right, hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Pramod John from VVO Health. Pramod, welcome to the show. Michael, thank you very much for having me on your show, Rob. It's great to be on it. Here's the game plan. What we seek to do on the show is challenge the status quo and educate our audience on non-traditional methods to either lower healthcare costs or improve value for employees. Make sense? Absolutely. Sounds great. All right. So to get us started, I'm going to read a brief bio about you so our audience has a little bit of context about who they're listening to, and then we'll get started with the interview. Pramod John is CEO of VVO Health. VVO Health is a specialty drug platform that uses data analytics and outcome-based models to help employers control their specialty drug spend. Prior to VVO Health, Promode was founder of Oration PBC, which changed the way consumers purchase prescription medications by capturing the prescription in the physician's office and providing all the pricing options and routing automatically. Promote was also VP of Strategy and Innovation at McKesson, where he helped develop solutions that leverage advanced technologies and business process improvements to optimize healthcare delivery systems, infrastructure, and supply chains. Promote earned his PhD in electrical engineering from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and he serves on boards of Mission Aviation Fellowship, a global relief organization, and Three Crosses Church in Castro Valley, California. All right. Anything you want to add to the bio, Promote? No, I think that's more than adequate. <laughs> All right. So you have an interesting background. You worked for many years in you know, software engineering and for you know, companies on the supply side of healthcare. So tell us, what motivated you to start a company serving payers of healthcare? You know, I think it was largely my, my background, as you point out, I'm actually from high tech and my first few ventures were in the high tech space. And I switched gears because I felt that healthcare was probably our biggest national social problem affecting our economy. And, you know, when I, when I got into it, I, you know, it was, it was a feeling that, look, we've solved really complex problems in high tech security. It was specifically in the computer security space. And so the, the idea was that, well, we could take all these ideas, right? And, and obviously we can automate, use software, make healthcare better by doing all the things that we've done in other industries. And of course, you get into the healthcare industry and you realize, well, actually, this isn't a technology problem. This has little to do with any of those types of issues. These are really large scale economic issues mm-hmm. and a very different kind of challenge, if you will. You know, we generally start these interviews kind of at the macro level, you know, and, uh, and then we'll get specifically into your product or service. I don't know if you saw it. There was a recent episode of 60 Minutes that highlighted the challenges one city was facing with its prescription drug costs. And it really ended up exposing how drug manufacturers drive up prices of drugs and how PBMs, you know, really benefit when this happens, which is just one example of the misaligned incentives, you know, in our healthcare system. So tell us, in your opinion, what do you think is, is wrong with, with healthcare today? And, and, and why do we see unit costs of healthcare prices to continue uh, to rise the way they do? You know, a really good question. And the, the 60 Minutes episode that you're referring to, which was the city of Rockford, in this case, in Illinois, was mm-hmm. the subject of the, of the 60 Minutes. And at some point, it's not only a drug that was, you know, or drugs in general, it was 
a very specific category of drugs that they were specifically, they were talking about. And that, those are specialty drugs. That's right. And so in this case, this was an example of a specialty drug that they were talking about, which has been in the press subsequently for a lot of reasons. And, and primarily the reasons are that you've got a drug that's being used off label. That's a ex- very expensive drug on, on average, half a million dollars a year for therapy per person. And it's being used off label more than it is being used on label. And you see physicians across the U.S. that are prescribing this therapy, which has no, I mean, if you go back to Malincrot's website, they in fact tell you that there's no evidence that this drug clinically is useful, right, in, in, in many of the areas that it's being used in. And so you've got a really interesting case in which if you step back and ask, well, hold on, well, clearly the drug company has an economic incentive to, you know, sell stuff, more stuff right, right. than they necessarily, that's how everybody makes money, right, by overselling, you know, beyond the need. But how about all the other parties in between who are supposed to prevent that from occurring? How about the PBMs and carriers who in some ways are supposed to be, you know, protecting the interests of the people who pay? How about the physicians? Because at the end of the day, as much as we blame PBMs and and carriers and everything else, a physician had to actually prescribe that drug. No differently than in the prescription opioid abuse issues, physicians ultimately are prescribing these. And nobody's asking the question of why aren't we going after physicians? Because a couple of things here, right? One is mm-hmm. we all make the assumption that that bond between a patient and a physician is almost like the lawyer attorney client privilege sort of issue, right? Where the attorney knows best, the doctor knows best. But in this case, we see over and over again, I mean, this is why star clause came into effect, right? Because we knew that doctors could be incentivized mm-hmm. to do the wrong things, right? And we're seeing that again, 82% of the physicians who prescribe that medication have received money from Mellencroft. Really? Yeah. That's the number that's come out recently, 82%. We've seen that in our own experience also, where we've got the customers who've got the members who are on this drug. And in our own research, we found that every one of the physicians has been paid by Mellencroft and other specialty drug manufacturers. This is really just a good example of how insurance has become a blank check for you know a lot of the suppliers on the healthcare side, because we're not doing the right due diligence and, and having the proper checks and balances to prevent something like that? Well, I, w- I would argue it's a little bit of the opposite. It's not a case where we don't know. It's a case where we do know. And we keep doing exactly the same thing over and over again. And so, you know, there's a situation where, of course, we, we have no culpability because we have no visibility. How many articles this year alone have you seen about the PBM industry? How many articles this year alone have you seen about pharma? How many articles this year have we read about physicians who prescribe medications without understanding the details of the trials and whether the medications are beneficial? So if we step backwards, we're, like, we're not in a situation where we don't know. This isn't that at all. I mean, think about what's happening with the Berkshire Hathaway, Amazon, and uh, JPMC you know, issue that's going on and then bringing on Atul Gawande. If you, if you were to step back and ask, well, why is this occurring? Well, it's because, again, it's another effort like the Health Transformation Alliance. Like, you know, the list goes on and on over the last 15 or 20 years where we've seen efforts like this over and over again. So if you step back and ask, why, where do these efforts come from? Because we've known about these issues for years, decades. The real issue isn't that we don't know. It's that we've done nothing, right? Those are two different things. And if yeah, there's I, any issue on our part, our issue isn't lack of knowledge. It's that we keep choosing to do the same thing over and over again expecting a different outcome. 
And that, my friend, is the definition of insanity, isn't it? There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I think that's a good transition into talking a little bit more about your organization. So you guys are not a pharmacy benefit manager or administrator. So tell us about the VVO Health you know, product and platform and specifically what problem you're attempting to solve. Absolutely. You know, when you look at, if you were to step backwards and a couple of reasons of why to begin with, why, why are we in specialty drugs, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and why, why specialty drugs to begin with? Well, it's a really simple reason. Over the last about 10 years, specialty drugs grew from being 5% of our drug spend, where we had a few people here and there, very small numbers, you know, almost a rounding error of population. To in the last 10 years, we went from that to this year beginning, we were at 42% of our drug spend being specialty. And the estimates by the end of the year are 50. And in the next, I think it's three or four years, the estimates are 80% of our spend will be in the specialty drug space. And those drugs are used by about 1% of the population. Okay? So to put this into perspective, yeah. and we've all talked about Amazon getting into the drug space and everything else. As of the end of 2015, we hit roughly that 90% of all drugs sold in America are generics. Mm-hmm. So if you took single source generics out, which are really brand because there's no alternative, it's roughly 85% of all mm-hmm. sorts account for about 15% of our drug spend. If Amazon were to take every generic and give it away, it would only cost, it would only save us 15 points on our drug spend. That's nine out of 10 scripts to every American. Just crazy. Right? And in the same time, if you look at what's happened, specialty drugs are now the fastest growing, hitting you know, 50% by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. They're used by a smaller and smaller percentage of the population. And pharma's pipeline, if you were to look at every drug in the pipeline, almost every drug is a specialty drug. And that's the reason why economically, even if we did everything right on the generic drugs and everything, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. The economics of the industry have shifted and they're now being driven by on the pharma side and on the PBM side by specialty. So if we don't get specialty right, everything else that we do doesn't matter. And so our focus is on two really simple things. One is the acquisition model. So we complain every, you know, every few weeks, there's a new article talking about the PBM model acquisition and everything. And so we're like, okay, well, there's an easy solution to that. Stop doing that, right? And have an alternative model. And so we have an alternative acquisition model, which does, if you will, think of it as the opposite of everything that a PBM model stands for. So if the PBM says contract discounts and AWP discounts, we say, no discounts. Don't do that. If you want a discount guarantee, economically, when you think about a discount guarantee, that is what causes inflation in yes. drug costs. Yes. Right? And you know what? Let me just make a comment on that because it's, it's, a, it's a good point and I want our listeners to understand that. The AWP model is just like the network discount model where we're getting a discount off some arbitrary fictional number, which is the build charge for whatever that drug or service is. And when that number goes up every single year, it just allows for inflation, right? So the AWP model, similar to the network discount model, is <laughs> one of the key flaws in the pricing system, yep. without a doubt. And so we've, we've stepped back and said, we don't care. We, we want to drive things off net acquisition cost. Because when you and I go to the store, None of us walks around the grocery store asking, what's the discount on lettuce? <laughs> we look at, hey, what's the price of lettuce? Right? Right. And in the same way, we look at the same model saying that, hey, 
we don't care about what discounts are. We care about what the net acquisition cost is. Because here, it goes back to your point, which people don't realize. Last year, when AbbVie came out with an alternative to Harvoni in the market, right? We saw very little uptick in it. And you're like, well, that's crazy. The drug costs less than about, it's it's only half of what the prices of post-rebate network discount, everything else, if you will, or AWP discount, of Harvoni, it's less than half face value. If you just paid cash for it, right? Mm-hmm. If you just paid full price with no discount, and you would have expected everybody to shift to that. But in our, in our, in our, in our market, going back to your comment, it's like, well, we got a bigger discount on Harvoni, even though the net acquisition cost was twice of what uh, of Maverick was. And so, as a result, we keep buying something with a bigger discount because, again, we're we're, we're emphas- you know we're solving the wrong problem. And here's another reason because a lot of times. A PBM in a contract will have network discount guarantees. And so they're incentivized to meet those discount guarantees, which have nothing to do with actual, like you said, acquisition cost. So that's a great example of how it would have been better for the client to transition all their patients onto that drug because it was a lower net acquisition cost. But in the contract that the PBM has with the employer, right, they have to meet their brand discount guarantee or their specialty discount guarantee. So they're, you know, incentivized to push people towards the higher cost drug. Exactly. So now you've got a, you've got a, you've got a problem where the intermediary in this case, you know, again, if we were to step back and ask, look, in, in our everyday lives, would we do this? And the answer to that is no, we stopped using travel agents a long time ago. Right. But when we start thinking about healthcare, we refuse to let go of our travel agents, even when we know that they're behaving like travel agents. Mm-hmm. Right. And so in this case, we've got exactly the same scenario. You've got inflationary drivers of the cost being tri- tied to the profitability of the intermediary. And so that's a model for the intermediary to do what they're doing. So it's no surprise that they're doing what they're doing because their economic model suggests that they would do so. Exactly. And so what we're saying is that, look, if you don't break that economic model, you're not going to see anything differently. And you have to start with the economic model being different. Mm-hmm. So we have no discount guarantees. But here's the crazy thing about it. And I'll, I'll get back to the crazy thing because, again, if you were to step back and you're like, but that means that we would pay more, right? Because the discount guarantee is what's actually allowing us to buy at a better price. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll give you an example. Last, um, this past, um, in the past couple months, we received a data set from one of the 10 largest ASO customers for one of the top three PBMs. That's a household name. Okay. And the assumption that everyone makes is it will clearly Vivio doesn't have the scale to be able to buy at the same scale of course, as one of the top 10 customers of this PBM, right? Because yes. they're so much bigger, right? That's yes. the assumption we all make. Bigger means better discounts, better pricing, blah, blah, blah. That, that would be a reasonable question from, you know, an employer who's looking at you. You know, you're, you're, you're a smaller organization, relatively new startup. How can you you know, get pricing comparative to the big boys, right? The top exactly. three PBMs. Right. And that's the biggest concern, right? If we get off this model, we're going to be, you know, paying way more hand over fist than we, rather than where, where we used to be, right? And so we ended up analyzing their data. We came to a really interesting conclusion, which was that we were able to acquire, and we have, a, we have also an open market on rebates. You know, something like a rebate to us is just a net acquisition cost differential, and beyond that, we don't care other than what is a maximal rebate. And at that point, some drugs have rebates, some don't Don't care. It's a net acquisition cost differential on a drug versus anything else, right? Beyond that, we don't care. We have no formulary. And so 
When we compared the price of what we were able to acquire in the open market with no AWP discount guarantees, no downstream contracts guaranteeing a specific price, because that's how we assume that we control price, right? And we did the opposite. We have none of those things. We are buying at exactly the same price and getting exactly the same rebate as one of the top 10 ASO customers for one of the top three PBMs with relatively speaking, no scale. And so when you step back and you're like, well, how is that possible? Yeah, right? how is that possible? Are you exactly. guys smarter than everybody else? And we're like, no, this has nothing to do with us being smarter or us negotiating better. It's because we're optimizing the wrong thing. And we don't realize that the thing that everyone has us focused on has nothing to do with the underlying cost of goods. That's the part of the problem that people don't understand. And all we're doing, and if you will, we're not smarter than anybody else. It's just that we understand the game. We're all from pharma, PBM, distributor, all that space. So we understand that those things that we're trying to optimize on, where we spend you know days doing RFPs or months, actually don't matter. Yeah. Right? And those so, aren't where you're losing your money. Let me just repeat what I've heard you say, which is basically in your system, in your model, going out, you know, you're going out and able to get pricing on specialty drugs, but you don't use the traditional, you know, AWP discount model. And you're just going and you're negotiating direct. What is your direct price net of rebates like you would for any other good and service? Exactly. And we compare them that way. So there's a, there's another thing that you, with employers don't actually realize because you remember that discount guarantee? Mm-hmm. They don't realize it cuts in the other direction too. So imagine that you're an employer XYZ, and these are all true stories, by the way. Yeah. You're employer XYZ. One day you wake up and on your large claims report, there's a new claim for $200,000. And that claim next month is another $200,000. And by the end of the year, you're at two and a half million bucks for one employee on a new drug that no one's ever heard of before. Well, Imagine that if you were to step back and ask, well, how did that happen? Why didn't somebody know? And why didn't I even have a choice to ask the question of what is that? Why are we paying for it? Is that a good use of our time, energy, money, and the plan's money? Well, that's because remember that discount guarantee? In that discount guarantee, you agreed as an employer to pay whatever someone presents as long as it follows the rules. And you've agreed to pay that discounted price, right? In our model, we're like, well, what other part of our lives would we say that anyone is allowed to come up with any price on any item and they can walk up to us and say, hey, you've agreed to a 15% discount and I can price it however I want. We're like, that's crazy. We would never do that. We would never do that. And we do it every single day in healthcare all day long. Right. And so in our model, we've said, well, no, we're not going to expose the buyer to have to say that you're obligated to buy anything at any price. So the, the, so the other benefit of removing the discount guarantee is it lowers a risk for the employer because for the first time, they're not agreeing to pay any price for anything, mm-hmm. right? Unless they feel it's reasonable. It protects them on the other side, which they don't realize that they've signed up for the other side of that, which is unlimited cost, if you will. Right. And I, and I assume there's PAs involved to put a filter on what gets passed through and what gets approved and paid. Yeah, so that's a really interesting question because if you think about, we've also obsoleted the prior authorization process. And you're like, well, why would you do that? How does that make any sense, right? And here's why. So today, the prior authorization process is primarily a check boxes on an electronic form or in a paper form. And as long as you check the right boxes, outcomes, whatever it is that you want. And we're seeing an industry now that has also changed very much into everybody knows which boxes to check. And so it's moved away from being, 
how do we identify individualized therapies and where a patient is and what the best trajectory is for them to be a case of where as long as we've checked the right boxes, we get whatever we want. So here's the other problem with the PA process. The PA process assumes that the person who's checking the boxes knows what's going on. So let's step back for a second. How do we start off the conversation? We started off this conversation talking about how physicians often, as much as we assume that they always understand everything mm-hmm. and do everything for the right reasons, that they don't. So let's take that a step further. If you were to go back and ask, what's the fundamental thing that a physician must understand as they are involved in drug therapies for patients? And we will go back to clinical trials, right? And if you were to go back and ask, what's the basis for all of the usage of drug therapies? Well, clinical trials. We have done surveys of physicians. We've seen national studies that have been done. Mm -hmm. In all of our surveys, when we've gone out and asked physicians to explain what the data means, 100% of them have answered the questions incorrectly, other than physicians who are involved in clinical trials themselves. So we have a fundamental problem here because we make an assumption that the physician can extrapolate that information from a clinical trial, which is a population level statistic, if you will, mm-hmm. into an N of one when a patient walks in, right? When you and I go see a physician, we're an N of one, right? And so it turns out that in all the studies that have been done and in our own research, mm-hmm. we find that doctors are actually very poor at understanding the, the data. So sure. the problem with this is that, well, our fundamental assumption for the system to work is that physicians must be very strong at being able to interpret, analyze, and extrapolate that data to the end of one patient who walks in. Well, for the most part, we have these drugs who go through clinical trials, right? And then they have to go through hurdles to get approved by the FDA. Isn't the assumption that if something's approved by the FDA, then it is therefore effective, right, in treating whatever the clinical trial said it was effective at treating. And then, you know, a a prescriber, a a physician would say, well, it's approved by the FDA and it's on the formulary. So therefore I should prescribe it. Well, I mean, you, you bring up a really good point, which is that the question of what does an FDA approval mean? And this is a, this is a a really interesting point that you bring up because all of us make assumptions as consumers, we make assumptions and the assumption is exactly as you brought up, which is that if the FDA has approved it, that's the gold standard. It must work. Well, it turns out if you were to go back and look at the FDA and its approval process, you'll discover a couple things. One is that the FDA's primary focus is on safety. It's never had a real focus or any objective standards on effectiveness of the drug. Okay, Got it. two different things. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the assumptions that we make, which are not about safety, we make assumptions that primarily an FDA approval is about effectiveness, Okay, mm-hmm. even though it has nothing largely to do with that. And, and so, for example, if you look at an FDA approval, Today, there are no objective standards on effectiveness. The only objective standard or, or any standard that we have in a trial is, in this case, that it must be better than placebo or it must not be more inferior than an existing drug. Okay. <laughs> so what does that mean? What is it better than placebo or, or let's put that in layman's terms. Better than placebo means that in drug trials, typically they do what's called a randomized control trial. In a randomized control trial, they basically pick populations that are random, you know, that randomly assigned. And in one arm, they'll give them a placebo. So in this case, think of sugar water. And in the other, they will give them the actual drug. And all they're looking for is a delta between the number of people who respond to the placebo 
versus the number of people who respond to the drug. So for example, let's say that 15% of the population in the drug arm met the endpoint. And you're like, hey, what's an endpoint? Well, the endpoint is the definition of what it means for it to work. Okay. One of the things that we often confuse and doctors confuse all the time is efficacy, which is the population which responds mm-hmm. with effectiveness, which is the measure of what did the drug actually do, right? There's two different things, but we don't differentiate between them. And most of the time, physicians confuse, and in the pub press, you'll see efficacy being confused for effectiveness. And those are two different things. Right. And effectiveness just means the population that responded. Now, the population that responded could have responded to something completely trivial. Right. Like, for example, take that drug that you were just talking about at the beginning of the, uh, the podcast about HPF mm-hmm. was the name of the drug that was featured. Okay. So if you step back and ask for MS, multiple sclerosis, it's one of the conditions that this drug is being used off label for. And you're like, well, what does a drug do? Well, the drug has one trial that they actually did in which if you were to look at it, the going back to this placebo in the placebo arm, the, the drug actually improved the clinical improve. There was clinical improvement for 70% of the population. And you're like, wow, that's huge number. Well, it's a huge number right. until I tell you that 50% of the people who took sugar water also had exactly the same improvement. <laughs> All right. I say half um, a million drug. Okay. And then if you're like, okay. then if you're astute based on our conversation, then you're like, but what was the improvement? I understand that, you know, 50% right. got there and 70% got there, but no one's asked, well, what was the improvement? Well, the improvement in this case was a, there's an arbitrary scale that they use for MS to measure sort of your quality of life called a DSS scale, which is a questionnaire, which asks, you know, can you do this? Can you do that? Is this affecting your life? Blah, blah, blah. Questionnaire that you fill out. So in that, there was a 10% improvement. Okay. That was the measure of us spending a half a million dollars a year on a drug. And that's also the measure metric of 50% of the people who just took sugar water also received a 10% improvement. So just to back up, so let's just say I'm a CFO of of an employer and I'm managing our self-funded plan and my PBM approved this drug on the formulary and I've got some people using it. And, you know, my assumption is that it's effective treating that condition. But what you're telling me is that for that half a million dollar drug that the PBM approved on the formulary, it only produces a 10% improvement in the actual, you know, managing the condition of multiple sclerosis and sugar water did that for, did the same thing for five out of 10 people. Well, it's even, unfortunately, it's worse than that. If you were to look (laughs) at their website, right? So clearly... You know, we want people to feel better, but ultimately when we look at a disease like MS, we want to prevent disease progression, right? Because our goal is not that you feel better, is that there's no disease progression. For example, plaques in your brain and other things that are the result of long-term, you know, MS progression. That's what we're really trying to prevent. We want you to feel better, but we don't want the plaques to progress in your brain more than, than the feeling better part of, you know, when you think about sort of clinically what that means for you as a person with MS. So the manufacturer at their website, they explicitly tell you there that there's no evidence that there's any clinical benefit at all long-term. It's never been measured and there's no evidence of it reducing or altering your disease progression. So you'll so, feel 10% better and you'll be on a drug that you could have been on another drug, which has clinical evidence that actually reduces the progression or slows it down. And instead you're on a drug which has no evidence that it does that. If this doesn't upset you, I mean something's wrong with you because I, I would be pissed 
if I'm the payer and I've got drugs that people are taking that we assume, right, because it has the FDA stamp of approval, that it's not only safe but effective. And I think this just goes back to the misaligned incentives that are inherent in the current purchasing structure because the PBM is making a big chunk of money on that drug. It's and unfortunately, it's not just that drug. It's every drug. I mean, you just you have you start having this discussion, and these so a couple of interesting things come out of this, right? Remember the thing that we assume again this this whole idea of drugs working. Well, it turns out when you actually start looking at clinical trials, almost every drug out there is the opposite. It typically only works for a minority of the population, and the endpoint or the description of what the drug actually does is often completely different than our assumptions of what that means. So for example, Humira is the largest grossing drug in all of history. And you're like, well, what was was clinical trial for Humira? I mean, this is a common drug compared to like an HPS or something like that, right? Sure. And so if you go back to the clinical trial for it, you'll find a couple of interesting things. One is that even for that drug, in 20% of the population, the first indication was for RA, for which, uh, you know, Humira was approved. And so for RA, in 20% of the population, if you were the rheumatologist and you were sitting in the room doing the trial, remember the trial is a controlled, it's, it's not a random population, it was a selected population. In that selected population, you as the physician could not tell the difference between the drug, in this case, or sugar water. One of these special drugs has side effect potentials like lymphoma and other things too. So there's no, this is not a zero-sum game, right? This is a game in which you're, you never take a drug without a potential side effect. It's okay if you need it, but it's definitely not something that you want to be on unless you absolutely need it. And so if you look at the drug, you find about a third of the population for who actually met the endpoint. So that's one out of three people. So you as a physician, you know that 30%, that one out of three? We've gone to physician after physician and asked them, what does that 30% represent? And the answer that we've got 100% of the time is that, that means that on average, the drug works 30%. So if you had 10 patients in a room, on average, everyone gets about a 30% response. That's not what that number means. That number means that in three out of 10 people hit the endpoint, seven out of 10 failed. It's a binary binning problem. So as a physician, you're trying to figure out when you see a patient, the expected value in this case is seven out of 10 failure rather than three out of 10 meeting an endpoint. You're trying to figure out which bin is this patient going to fall into or has fallen into right? Is, is, is the question. And how can a physician possibly do that? You know, what, what, what knowledge and expertise yeah, I, are they going to be able to have to figure it out? But that's a really good question because that, what that's really saying is that then as a physician, your job in life is not to prognosticate about what you do know. It's to actually talk about what you don't know, right? And in this case, what you're saying is, look, if you walk in and I've got you're the URI rheumatologist and we've got 10 patients, that means that we actually don't know the answer to the question because we don't have any knowledge right. of a priori, right, to tell us which bin someone's going to fall in, which means how do we build a process to figure out what's happening with each patient, right? Mm-hmm. Which really means that we need to think about the way we practice medicine differently. And at some point, going back to when we think about an N of one patient, now we have to realize that this is a mathematical statistical problem. This is not a biology problem. This has nothing to do with clinical. So think about another question, which is relevant, which is, A clinical trial is by its nature a mathematical problem and statistical problem. There's nothing clinical in a clinical trial, even though we say clinical trial. The people who do them are biostatisticians. So now we take a data problem and now we extrapolate that because we have a physician who is now trying to make a probability assessment associated with the patient. 
which is also a mathematical statistical problem, right? That's what diagnosis and therapy actually is. What's the one thing that we've shown that physicians are not good at? Math. We've shown that over and over again in every study that's been done on probability and physicians' ability to be good at making probabilistic judgments. And so we have a problem because our education system emphasizes things like biology, and no one is dealing with biology as a physician. It's a probability and statistics problem with every patient that you see, right? No one, no physician is sitting there going through, picking through your veins to figure out new things about veins. They're just trying to figure out a known body of knowledge. What's the probability and confidence of a diagnosis for you for whatever the diagnosis is? What's the confidence? What are the error bars associated with that? And then what are the potential therapies, right? All probability yes. statistics has nothing to do with biology. We talk about waste in healthcare purchasing. This almost feels like a different type of waste, you know, because inevitably drugs that are being prescribed for, you know, this example is population of 10. They're just not going to work for 70% of the population. So, so tell us about specifically what you guys are doing to kind of address these problems in your, your business model. So we've stepped back and, and we've said, look, these problems are, they exist. And us not solving them isn't going to change anything. So we're going to fix this, right? So we built a model from the get-go that was completely different. So our model, like you said, the acquisition piece of it is the acquisition piece. We have a completely different model for acquisition. In the same way, we have a very different model for therapy. And so we've replaced a prior authorization, which we feel is useless, with what we call a therapy plan. So think about what we're really doing, which is, now we cooperatively look at every individual to understand where they are in disease progression, our own mm-hmm. independent assessment of every individual to determine what we think or what the possible uh, you know, therapies, for example, are. So in one way, what we're really doing is we're doing the things that everyone thinks that someone else is doing, but it turns out nobody is, right? Because if you step back and ask, well, if I were to go to the PBM and say, all right, Michael, I want to know your whole history of you have RA, you know, as a patient, or you've got some other disease. Tell me about Michael and where they are in his, his history. Nobody has that. If I were to go to your no. physician and say, give me a snapshot of Michael at any given point in time, you know, on average, a physician, you know, a specialist sees a patient for a few minutes, once or twice a year. How do you manage a complex trajectory disease for a patient by seeing them once or twice a year? What do you think? They're going to go through all your clinical records for an hour before you get there? Nobody has a time to do that. Our system doesn't support that. So it turns out nobody's doing that. And so we said, well, somebody needs to do that, right? Especially the people who are paying for these $100,000, $200,000 million therapies, right? Yes. And so yes. we inverted the problem to say, well, we can collect the data and understand exactly where the patient is. And now we can also measure and understand, is the patient actually making progress towards whatever that treatment target is? Nobody's doing that, Mm -hmm. as obvious as that is. And so we're like, well, this is a great problem for computers, software, analytics, and it's a data problem, right? And so now we have inverted the whole problem to say our responsibility to understand that patient, all the therapies, what the options are, and what the possible trajectories are. And so our model inverts that. And, and instead of being a PA, which is really a yes or no gate, we have a cooperative planning process with the physician where we determine and analyze every patient and then provide them with an assessment back of here's where we think the patient is. Here's where all the different therapies. Here are the costs for the therapies, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Here's why we think yep. this is the right option. And if you disagree with this, provide us with data on why we're wrong. We're not asking for your opinion. We've got access to all the same information you do. 
right, on clinical trials, MCCN guide. We've got all those things. Tell us why we're wrong about that one patient that's sitting in front of you. And so what happens there? Because I would imagine, you know, there are are certain physicians who, let's just say they might be uh, upset by that process because they just want to prescribe what they want to prescribe, right? So so what's been the response to that from physicians? Really good question. We've seen an almost binary distribution. And the distribution largely is one set of physicians who are like, well, okay, because there's there's nothing to argue about because we're pretty rigorous about what we do, what we say, et cetera, right? And then one set of physicians who are like, as you point out, we really don't care what you have to say and we really don't care about the data. Ultimately, this is not about us because our thing is not Vivio Health wants you to make a decision. It's here's the data, here's the analysis on this patient. And if we're wrong, you tell us why we're wrong. We're open to suggestions on why we could be wrong, right? But you need to provide data. In those cases where we see physicians who are taking the non-data path, we have yet to have a single physician provide us with any data other than this is what I'm going to do. And I'd like to do it. I don't really care what you have to say. This is really more of a data-driven approach to figuring out what therapy is most appropriate for that individual person of all the different therapies that are out there, what gives them the best chance of it being effective versus a provider prescribing a medication that he doesn't necessarily have that same information, maybe getting a kickback from a drug manufacturer, have other incentives to prescribe a certain medication. So really it's more of a, an effective data-driven filter than maybe what the traditional prior authorization process has been. Well, and it's ongoing. So we collect data along the way. So what our therapy plan in some ways, think of it as a, well, we're going to cooperatively work with you as a physician, but then we've agreed to a contract between us. And the contract between us is that we'll pay for the drug, but we want this data. And that's how we're going to assess whether the patient's making progress. And we're only going to pay for as long as the patient's making progress. And the day that that stops, well, it would be irresponsible for us to pay for something that's not working for that patient any longer. So even even those simple things, like, for example, collecting data along the way, which would seem obvious, nobody's doing today in the market, as crazy as that is. If people assume your physician is, your physicians aren't. They're not collecting objective data on how patients are doing I think from an employer standpoint, I mean, this sort of process is more in line with, you know, meeting the employer's fiduciary responsibility to spend health plan assets in a responsible way, because quite frankly, the, the controls are, are, are limited and not necessarily effective in, in a current, the current model that we have today. Well, I think, you know, it's kind of interesting. When we think about things like surgery, if you think about reversals over the last N number of years, right? You, you've, we've seen stories of reversals on even things as simple as mastectomies. If you were to think about sort of in the 1800s when something like that was invented and sort of the progression, which started out being, we don't really know what cancer is. There's a lump, let's just cut, it, cut out everything. And then it, it progressed to let's just cut more and more and more because that means safer margins for people until they're disfigured, you know, limbs are missing, all sorts of things to where right. finally people started collecting data. And when they started collecting data, they started realizing oh, it actually matters on the progression of the disease and the type of cancer more than do you have cancer. And therefore, disfiguring people who've got metastatic cancer that spread makes zero difference. And disfiguring people who don't have that, you've just disfigured someone and there's no benefit whatsoever to the patient. Over the last, you know, 100 or so years, we saw that to where suddenly this data was being collected, we saw that the practices that we were doing were wrong right? Mm -hmm. And reverse those practices. In drugs, 
we have almost no measurements. The only thing typically that causes a reversal in drug therapies today is if there's a safety issue of someone dying. Short of someone dying, we rarely ask the question of, well, how do we know that it's working? Working. Right. right. And that's the right. question that, nobody's asking today, other than did a side effect cause a death? And in this case, if we could learn one thing that we've learned from traditional medicine outside of drugs, it's that mm-hmm. we've done a better job there of, of asking really the question of, does this really work? work. Right. Versus in pharma, we've almost never have asked that question and we continue to prescribe and use things and no one's really asking, why aren't we measuring the effectiveness of every patient every time? Why? What prevents us from that? One of the things, so essentially your company, Vivio Health, this is carving out the administration, the procurement and the management of the specialty drug component, you know, in, in pharmacy, given that specialty is such a huge revenue driver for a lot of these PBMs, I would assume that most of them are not receptive to, you know, allowing you to carve out the specialty piece. Yeah, really good point. I think that, you know, a couple things, right, is that you bring up a really good point, which is it's a big revenue driver. That is also the reason why we save employers so much money because it's a large, if it were not a large revenue driver, then there'd really be no opportunity to save money. You can't save right. money on 15 points of you know generic drugs that are 90% of drugs, right? Because there's not money there to save. Right. The reason we can save so much money and we're saving our customers in the range of 30 to 50% of what they're spending currently based on what their growth trajectory is, right? And the reason for that is exactly the point that you brought up, which is it is now the biggest revenue driver. And as a result, you're absolutely right. Nobody likes us. None of the carriers do. None of the PBMs do. And every one of our customers has had a conversation that goes something like this. They go to their PBM and carrier and say, hey, we'd like to carve out specialty. And they come back and say, that's impossible. No, we're not going to do it. Right. And we can't do it. And those customers have gone back to them and said, okay, we'll find someone who can if you can't. And every one of them has come back and said, we figured out a way to make that happen. <laughs> it's funny how that would happen with just a little little uh, nuanced language, right? You're absolutely right. And so, and again, that's to be expected. I mean, in some ways, it's, it's sort of an interesting conundrum because as you point out, employers fear the new. They fear the yes. new more than they fear the devil that they do know, right? You know, type of thing. And yep. even there, the same devil who is being obsoleted is the one to put the most pressure, which scares the employers even more. Yes. So I think about the negative feedback loop in this case. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So this makes a lot of sense. So you've mentioned kind of typical savings of 30 to 50%, and you guys have have been around for a couple of years. So how many clients do you have so far? And what's the base of employee lives that you're working with so far to, to kind of get a baseline of results? So we, we started out, we launched with our first customer last year, beginning of last year, mm-hmm. and they had about 8,000 members. And they're also, you know, interestingly enough, cost is a big driver, right? They're also yep. on the Fortune 100 best places in America to work. And they've been number 20 or something for like, I don't know, seven or eight years. So for yep. them, they actually care more about the employee experience in some ways than even the cost savings. So they're yep. like a lot of companies aren't willing to say, you know, like we're in healthcare, we're used to the concept of, you get less for more every year, whereas in the rest of our lives, we expect to get more for less, you know, type of yes. thing. 
And so yes. we're like, hey, we want to invert that, not just on the cost axis, but we want to change that on the employee experience side too. And so we, our model also has like, for example, gets rid of all the coordination. We have concierges that manage all that sort of dealing with the, the silly healthcare system and figuring out all of this. We're like, why would, how would a patient figure this out? We can figure it out. Can't. It's what we do every day, yep. right? You know, we understand this better than anybody else does. Why would we want to educate a patient? So our model also inverts that and we figure out. So, so what we ended up with was not only did all of our customers have all of our customers save money, their experience has been better. We have employees emailing. Employees never email positive things, right? They only employ, you know, email when something's broken. We have, we have case after case after case where they've emailed benefits saying, this is so much better than the way that it used to be, right? You know, this sort of thing. And so we've changed the employee experience and the cost curve and, and, out, and ultimately the outcome. We're really focused not on even the cost curve. We're, we're focused on how do we get to the right outcome? And paying, yeah. overpaying for a drug is a wrong outcome, right? When you can get there for less. And so we started the year with one, we, and we ended the year with four and about tw- just under 25,000 members by the end of the year. And this, uh, by the end of this year, we're expecting that we'll be probably at least three to four times that. Every one of them, going back to your question, every one of them is happy. And every one of them, by half of the year, we're only at half the year for this new year. Yeah. Every one of them is at over a 2x ROI, and it's only half the year. Which, which leads to my next question was, let's talk about the cost structure. So we know about kind of the misaligned incentives in the traditional black box PBM model, spread pricing on all the drugs, you know, higher cost drugs, they make more revenue. And there's plenty of PBMs out there that, that have, you know, a, an admin fee type model, you know, more transparent pass through model. So what is your fee structure for your business platform? So we charge a $5 PPM across the, you know, population that are in the plan. And that's okay. it. So we have, we get no other compensation from any other party. And, you know, everybody says they're transparent, but we have now seen how that too has become a sort of, yeah, everyone's just, you know, sort of the big three PBMs, they're transparent too, because they have transparent contracts, which are not transparent, right? And so at some <laughs> yes. point we're like, well, hold on, how do we, how do we bring meaning back to transparency? And in some ways, I think people also misconstrue transparency almost to be that the end use for a consumer has visibility in pricing. And our argument is that that's irrelevant. Well, we need transparency in how everybody makes money in the industry, right? How every one of your yeah. suppliers, you need to know how your supplier is, uh, makes money. And so in our case, we're, we're very clear that, hey, we charge an admin fee, right? Or if it's $5 PEPM. But then you're like, well, how do I know? You know, maybe you're getting paid by pharma. Maybe there are all these other things going on, right? Because that's what happens in real life. So our contracts state that you as an employer are free to examine any contract that we have with anyone else. Because that's how people hide money, not in your contract with the, you know, the client. It's with the underlying contracts, right? And so that's the step that we've gone to say, look, when we say transparent, we mean it, right? And so you're free to examine any contract. And we would highly recommend that every con, you know, person who's contracting should have that written into their contracts. Say, look, if you're going to represent me, then I want visibility into all your underlying contracts. Well, 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 here's a simple question. So how long is the actual contract? How many pages? Our contract is probably about 10 or 12 pages, but a lot of that tends to be, and if you, and if you were to look at the contract itself, right, most of it is boilerplate around information security, right? All the standard terms and conditions that have nothing to do with healthcare. So if you were to look at the healthcare contractual related that are specific to what we're doing, I would say it's a page and a half, all the terms and conditions and by the way, going back to that, the other thing that we've done is our contracts, employers are free to leave whenever they want to. 
we don't believe that someone should in any industry be locked to buy a service. Right. From them. And so our contracts are, you can leave at will any day you want to. And that means that if we're not performing for you, you shouldn't keep us. And as a result, yeah. the contract allows you to leave any day you want to. Well, the reason I asked that specific question is, you know, I think it's telling the contracts with, you know, some of the big three PBMs are close to a hundred pages, right? Yeah. Why are those contracts a hundred pages? Well, there's a lot of language, I think, that protects the PBMs and allows them the flexibility to do a lot of things that maybe aren't transparent and maybe not in the best interest of the client. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a really good point, which is that the more there is, the harder it is for someone to understand what that contract means. Mm -hmm. If you were to look at our contract, I guarantee you any benefits person could take a look at it and understand it because there's nothing in it. It's a very common sense sort of contract of saying, you do whatever you want. We procure for you at the lowest price. We give you all the information, all the underlying data. All the data is yours, mm -hmm. right? Just simple things like it's your data. You do whatever you want with it. You give it to our competitors. We don't care. It's your data, right? You're free to do whatever you want. You own your data. That's right. We provide you with all the underlying information. Here's how our model works, right? Here's what we provide. And it's very simple. So what I've heard, we've got a transparent fee, about $5 PEPM, ROI of about 2X. Clients. Oh, no, no, on the low end, we have customers that are like 6 and 8X. Oh, I was about to say, savings between 30 and 50%, which is yeah. just yeah. super significant. Yeah. So we have a wide base of folks who listen to this show, employers, you know, benefits consultants as well. And so is there a size limitation? Is there a target market, that employer size that you're going after? You know, on the really low end, about 500 to 1,000 employees is typical. Okay. Part of it is also that, you know, when you get into those small numbers, some of them have high specialty spend. Some of them really don't have any specialty spend. Yeah. You know? And so at that point, it's hard to make an economic argument for managing your specialty when you don't really have any specialty. Yeah. But when you get above that, you know, 500 to 1,000 employee, we've just never come across anyone who does not have significant specialty spend. So I think that's probably the bigger driver than anything else. Gosh, you know, we've talked about a lot and I want to be respectful of your time. We're getting close to the end of the hour here. What are some of the obstacles you've encountered to an employer saying yes to implementing your service? You know, I think the, the number one is really fear, uncertainty, and doubt about doing anything different. Different. Right. And there's just a very, I mean, I'm from high tech and in the high tech space, you know, everyone is all about trying new things right? So your buyers tend to be ones who will try new things or tech people and other things. In the benefit space, often we find that buyers are, and you know, rightfully so, it's that this is a complex, it's there's so much smoke and mirrors. At some point, it's hard to know where the smoke and the mirrors end, mm -hmm. right? And they're so used to that. It's like, it's really hard for them to understand, are we buying something worse? Are we going to be worse off than we started with, right? You know, sort of thing. And I think that's the biggest fear that drives people. And I think we've tried to lay that fear by one couple things. One is that mm -hmm. specialty is surgical. And what I mean by that is that it's one to one and a half percent of your population. So if you think about in your population, how many people would be affected? This is the highest return on investment of anything on a per capita basis that you can do today in your enterprise, because the number of people is so small you're talking to one to one and a half percent of your population. Yep, that's so true. I mean, you you want to really piss off your employee population, you know, change the copay on, uh, you know, generic or brand because that affects everybody, you know, an immediate, but something like this, you're right. It's going to affect a, a small percentage of the population. And in general, we try to improve things. Remember, in, in our model, mm -hmm. we usually get rid of copays. Our argument is that 
on a $50,000 a year therapy, your copay is not what's influencing your decision. And copays were influenced because people were making the wrong choices. Mm -hmm. like, we manage your therapy, right? And we have objective data on, is it the best optimal, best cost, all those things. Why do we need to charge you a copay? For what? What are we trying to influence you to do differently? We're not asking you to influence you know, your decision. We're trying to say, your physician is the primary arbiter. If there's yeah. anyone in this pool, it's not you. You know, that's, that's a great point. More and more, you know, we see benefit designs where, you know, you've got coinsurance up to a certain dollar amount for specialty drugs. And then even with the high deductible plans, I mean, I'm, I'm actually not a big believer in, in a lot of these high deductible plans because that employee, that person, they didn't choose to have that condition. And so if, if the drug does cost $3,000, you know, a month, their out-of-pocket maximum is 10 grand. Well, guess what? They're out 10 grand, right? And well, if they're and, at 30,000, yeah, no, no. Well, I was say, if, if they're a low-income employee, that's a significant burden. Well, and not only and that, it's not it's their the, fault. Right, and, and it works. You've got a couple of other dimensions that a lot of HR people care about, rightfully so. It's that, so you end up on a 10,000, you know, uh, you know, got $10,000 deductible and you're on that drug. Drug manufacturer puts out a copay card so that in month, you know, one and a half, you've actually gone through your deductible and you're out of pocket. They've artificially raised the price and they themselves have artificially deflated it by giving you a credit on that. And so now you've hit your out-of-pocket max and healthcare is free for you for the rest of the year because you happen to be on a drug in which there's a drug manufacturer who offered a copay card. But how about the poor person who ends up in an ER and there is no copay card? So suddenly the person sitting next to you is out 10 grand and then you paid zero and you've already hit your out-of-pocket max for the year. You're not paying a yeah, dime yeah. for healthcare anymore, right? And so- yeah, not, not, so imagine, not equitable. Right, how inequitable that is to the poor person who ended up in the ER who's actually out 10 grand versus a drug company that artificially inflates prices and then deflates it by offering you a credit. Yeah, no, I, I definitely like the idea of uh, not charging employees anything and you know working behind the scenes to drive the savings. Exactly, and at that point, you prevent those sorts of distinctions from driving arbitrary use of healthcare, which is not good for us, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. If there was one question that I should have asked you in this interview, but I didn't, what would it be? How about medical? Because it turns out there are a lot of drugs, as you know, for a lot of employers, it could be a dollar on the medical side for specialty drugs too. And today we've put an arbitrary line in the sand and saying that if you inject it yourself, it's a pharmacy benefit, but if somebody else gives it to you, same drug, you walk into a doctor's office, it's professionally administered and that shows up somewhere else. It's billed somewhere else. It's even worse because even the fake numbers like AWP don't really exist in that market anymore, right? And so you've got a market in which there are no constraints really on pricing, which is even worse than the drug, as bad as the drug situation is, right? And so we're like, well, why should it matter? It's the same drug, right? Why does it matter whether it's on one side or the other? Why does it matter? Because for example, you're a patient and you have RA and there are some drugs that are infusion. Should you be treated from a therapy perspective differently and not holistically saying, well, if you went and saw someone who prescribes you a drug on the medical side, everything that happens is completely different than if you got something you picked up at a pharmacy. And we're like, that makes no sense. Who arbitrarily drew, you know, put this line in the sand? It has nothing to do with the outcome for the patient. So our, do, you, do yeah, you have a method of doing yeah, that? Yeah, our, our model actually covers both. And so it, uh, it's not just the pharmacy side. And our fee, there's no extra fee or anything. There are no hidden fees. Everything is completely covered. There's no, you know, it is one fee. It, it is what it is. And it covers both medical side and pharmacy side drugs. Okay, beautiful. 
Love it. All right. Well, hey, I think this was a great discussion and very insightful. So how can people interested in the Vivio Health product and service learn more information and get in touch with someone from your organization? Uh, very easy. No, number one, our website has got, you know, information has got, you know, the usual things of here's your phone number, here's our email address, here's a contact form if you want to contact us, yep. all the obvious things. And then on top of that, my email address is just promote, P-R-A-M-O-D at viviohealth.com. And any one of the listeners is free to contact me directly. Okay, great. Well, promote on behalf of our listeners and myself, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us. I think it's been a great discussion and uh, I think, uh, you know, our, our audience is going to enjoy it. Thank you very much. And again, thank you for uh, having us on the show. We really appreciate it. And so to our listeners, we, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. And with that, we'll sign off wherever you're at. We hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you liked what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to VVO Health's website and contact information. Lastly, be sure to check out some of the free resources on our website, including links to articles and books, as well as our Health Plan Innovator Scorecard, where you can benchmark your health plan against a plan that is truly designed to lower healthcare costs and improve value for your employees. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.